porn is not about self-medicating. It's not about uh, something that I do when I'm anxious. I think unwanted sexual behavior is actually to reinforce judgments that we hold against ourselves. Well, hello there, and welcome to the All of Life show. I am one of your hosts, Stuart White, along with my wife, Alicia White. And we are really excited to have you guys with us. We're excited for this show. In this episode, we interview Jay Stringer. He is an author and a counselor therapist who has written a book called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And this is a fantastic book. We will be including a link in the show notes. So please use that if you are interested at all and go and purchase the book. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. You can get it in hard copy. You can get it as an audio book. Uh, we recommend all of them. So go ahead and get that. But this interview, babe, how would you say, like, this was this was really just so compelling. I, I was so moved in this interview. W weren't you? Yeah, I would say this is probably to date my favorite episode that we've done. I would, oh gosh, first of all, like just researching and getting to learn some of his material in advance was incredibly impactful, but then just speaking with him and, um, like he is a wealth of knowledge in this area. And I feel like I just super respected his uh, process, his um, research ability. Uh, he's very well-spoken, a, a gifted uh, communicator. So yeah, this was definitely my favorite episode so far. Yeah. I think after listening to this, you will probably want even more and above and beyond just his book. Uh, there are some awesome interviews that you can do uh, on um, YouTube and some videos where he's giving uh, a presentation before uh, one, it was a group of CEOs who I'm assuming they were Christians or it was a Christian organization, but just a fantastic presentation. And if you or someone you know, which chances are that's literally everybody listening to this, is wrestling, has wrestled, uh, is currently trying to work their way through their own sexual brokenness. I really encourage you, listen to this whole episode, listen to the very end, uh, and I pray that God will use this in your life and that this will be something where there will be a turning point. There will be an opportunity in your life that God just reaches your heart and shows you that rather than running from your brokenness and hiding your brokenness and your shame, actually pressing into it, like Jay talks about in this interview, is going to hold the keys to finding true freedom. And, you know, that's really what the gospel is all about. That's what this show is all about. And uh, so we want to encourage you, listen to the whole thing. And also, if you do have some small ears, little kids listening to this, there, it's not uh, indecent or anything, but there are some, you know, mature topics that are being discussed. So uh, if you have anyone in the room that you wouldn't feel comfortable listening to that, uh, then perhaps it would be something best listen to alone first. So with that being said, let's get right to the interview. Jay, welcome. Alicia Stewart, thank you for having me on. So good to be with you all. We are very glad to have you here with us today. Um, so 
tell us a bit about your book and how did it come about? What were what was the impetus behind it? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I, like many of us, uh, we we hear statistics all the time around the reality of sexual brokenness. Uh, you know, we know that about a third of all marriages uh, will, at some point deal with uh, infidelity. We know that, you know, two thirds of church going men are watching porn, 66% of pastors uh, or youth pastors, 57% of pastors are struggling with this. About a third of all porn users are now women. And so we know that kind of unwanted sexual behavior, sexual brokenness are rampant uh, really across the world. Uh, but then when you actually ask people, basically, how are we supposed to address this? Uh, part of what I would say is that we tend to go into two different categories, either lust management or shame management. And so I would say most uh, Christian audiences uh, usually go into something of lust management. And this is the, you know, bounce your eyes when you're having uh an inappropriate longing for someone, uh, get into accountability. If you continue to struggle, get some internet monitoring on your computer. Uh, but as one of my friends said to me in the last year, he said, Jay, when I've been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, something just isn't working here. Uh, and so that would be primarily the Christian lust management is that we just need to stop this thing. We need to pray it away. We need to get internet monitoring. But then I would say this is more of the progressive side. Uh, it, they kind of view the primary enemy as shame. And so if we could just kind of get rid of people's shame and their sexual shame, then they would automatically kind of translate into healthier forms of sexuality. And so I think uh, just kind of getting a sense of lust management and shame management uh, really do not invite people to really make meaning out of their sexual brokenness. And so that was the decision uh, to write this book and to do research was, what if we could just ask people who are actually struggling with sexual brokenness to tell us their story, to tell us uh, what were their relationships like with their parents? What were some of the formative experiences of trauma, sexual abuse that they went through, and how did those early formative experiences really go on to shape their sexual life? Uh, and so that's the that was the impetus to write this, is let's understand the meaning of our sexual brokenness instead of just trying to liberate it uh, or stop it. I like that you, you take that and you, you, you string this tension between the two sides there. And instead of saying, these are your only options. It's it's binary. It's A or B or, or B, uh, ones or zeros. You you create uh, somewhere in the middle where it's like each one is hitting on something, but they're missing a very vital piece of that. So you take that idea of rather than running from it, you press into it, um, and you can discover what it is that it, the damage is. How, how does that actually look and how does that play out? Do, do you see, what would you say, I guess, to the person who says, well, I, you know, I have my accountability group and I'm doing just fine. Why, why is it that there's actually a third option in there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the third option is about being curious about why a particular porn search, why a particular fantasy archetype uh, is appealing to you in the first place. And so a lot of times, you know, it, most of the time when I hear people talk about accountability, 
uh, or internet monitoring, they, they talk about it in terms of kind of fences that they're always trying to get over or under in order to access porn or, you know, just that kind of awkward place of you get the email from your accountability partner and it's like, yep, looked at porn again on a Sunday night. And so I think part of what, you know, we're trying to invite people into is what are the formative stories that most shape uh, what you find arousing or the sexual behaviors that you're pursuing. Uh, and so I think a lot of the research that I did uh, basically came down to the reality that unwanted sexual behavior is not random at all. It was a direct reflection of the parts of our story that remained unaddressed. And so I think that this is actually really good news. It means that uh, the sexual brokenness that you're pursuing, the type of porn search that you have, uh, the fantasy that keeps coming into your mind when you're having sex with your spouse uh, can actually be a roadmap to healing rather than a life sentence to sexual shame or addiction. And so uh, I think what I'm trying to invite people into is this, this really path of curiosity around why is it that I keep succumbing to the same temptation? Why is it that year after year, these themes keep coming back to me? So good. Jay, um, we've heard a little bit of your personal story from teachings that, or speaking engagements that we've watched and um, a little bit from your book too, but could you share with our listeners kind of what brought you, like why you started all of this research and, um, and just a little bit of your personal story with that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I would say uh, I come at this both from a professional standpoint and a very personal standpoint. Uh, from a professional standpoint, uh, men and women were arriving in my office that had almost no understanding of what sexual brokenness was. Uh, I did some early work with the city of Seattle's John School, which is a program to address uh, basically men who are buying sex in the city of Seattle. And the more and more I started working with these men, the more and more I started seeing that there was a huge connection between like just one example would be a guy told me, Jay, I, I definitely like buying sex, but the, the most appealing part of that whole thing is actually locking eyes with a woman on the streets. And we start kind of going back into his story and he tells me this like really stunning, beautiful story about how he uh, was a middle schooler uh, who was left alone quite a bit during his childhood. And he got a Schwinn bicycle from his parents when he was in seventh grade. And he said, Jay, I used to cruise around my neighborhood trying to lock eyes with girls in my class and, and their moms. Uh, and what he never realized was that he was using the same language much later in life. And so, you know, this Schwinn bicycle eventually became his SUV. Um, and, and so that was kind of the path of healing for him is how do we kind of go back to the, the, the beauty of his longing before it became correct corrupted and exploitive. Uh, and so I would say I kind of went on a very similar journey when I was in seminary, uh, grad school, uh, really trying to understand uh, my own allure to pornography, uh, my own kind of fantasy life. And so when I was walking through some of this with my therapist, uh, you know, one of the things that she said is, uh, you know, why do you think that you're drawn to mother oriented themes in porn? Uh, why is it that what you just described in your fantasy life of you kind of meeting 
women's needs and their emotional needs. And I was like, okay, so I have mother oriented themes and I have, I'm really good at meeting kind of the emotional needs of women. Where does this all come from? Well, it's not to blame my mom for my porn struggle, uh, but it is to kind of be able to go back to, I, I grew up in a, uh, I was a pastor's kid, a PK, and my dad uh, was the pastor of a small Presbyterian church and would do a lot of kind of meetings midweek. And I have a lot of memories of him going off to a session meeting, attending to a crisis in our church. And that was a lot of my role in my family was, okay, my dad is about to leave to go and attend to a crisis or a necessary meeting. My mom's going to be disappointed uh, or angry, depending on how many meetings he's had this week. And that was kind of our bond was me checking in with my mom to see how she was doing. Was she angry? Was she sad? What did she need more of around the house? Could I help her with dishes? Could I vacuum the hairy floor shed by my psychotic golden retriever? <laughs> um, so there, there was all these scenes of, you know, I, I basically learned a lot of my identity as a, as a boy and eventually as a man was I need to be highly attuned and have a radar out for the needs of women. Um, well, how could that not go on to shape my sexual life? Um, the, some of my greatest gifts as a man are about being able to see vulnerability in people's lives. That's essentially why I became a therapist. Uh, but I think the work of evil, the work of kind of my own pathology is to kind of take the good, take the beautiful and actually twist it to more uh, unwanted means. And so I think that that was a lot of my own healing process was, wasn't so much the ability to say no to porn uh, or no to fantasy, but to really go back to uh, what are some of my greatest gifts as a man and how are those being corrupted in the world of pornography? And so I think for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a sense of uh, getting into accountability saying no, but really a sense of, I want beauty in my life. I don't wanna sabotage some of my greatest glory. Uh, I wanna protect that. And so I think for me, it was much more the process of outgrowing pornography than it was quitting porn or just stopping it, uh, but really a sense of my heart became more and more free uh, in that therapeutic process uh, and certainly kind of in marriage to kind of really corner me with what story am I actually living out of? And if I wasn't falling into that temptation and sidelining my integrity, what would I actually be free to create and offer to the world? I really like that your approach seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that kind of people don't examine beyond the surface usually the the unexamined life is not worth living as the quote goes you know but yeah. it, it, really in this it's like if if you don't examine the unexamined life will not grow will not change um how how do you see the church today and christian counseling and and even we'll throw in like secular counseling because i know that it's becoming a popular thing now where there's even movements online where it's just like, I quit porn, I quit masturbation, I quit these things. And you actually have people posting YouTube videos about it's been day six and I'm feeling great, you know, and, and it's sort of this in their own strength, in their own power, but you don't really hear too much about like day seven, oops. You know? <laughs> um, how, how would you say 
the the approach that those things are taking ends up not helping or maybe even hurting the people. Yeah, it, it's such a such a great distinction, Stuart. So uh, I'm all for a lot of that, like that, you know, we if our mind is foggy with porn, if it's foggy with a lot of shame, uh, it, it's really good to be able to take a 21 day detox, just even from a, you know, neuropathway perspective of kind of the, you know, the the saying in neuropsychology is the, the neurons that fire together wire together. And so if every time I'm stressed or angry or alone, I sync porn with that. Well, the neurons that wire together are going to fire together. Um, and so that sense of a, a detox can be really helpful to disrupt a lot of those on-ramps that people take uh, when they're feeling anxious, when they're feeling angry, when they're feeling bored. So I'm all for that. But I think part of the struggle that you're getting at is uh, if I've done four or five of these detoxes over the last four or five years, uh, well, I still have to contend with the reality of why do I keep going back to porn? Uh, and so that's where a lot of my approach is to say uh, porn is not about self-medicating. It's not about uh, something that I do when I'm anxious. I think unwanted sexual behavior is actually to reinforce judgments that we hold against ourselves. And so if I feel unwanted, if I feel like I'm a piece of crap, uh, if I feel like there's nothing good will ever come to my life, well, I go to porn to actually find evidence to confirm that that is actually true. Um, and so I think that that's the third way of meaning of what it, how is porn actually serving to kind of reinforce that my life will never be able to change. Uh, one of my seminary professors, friend of mine is a guy named Dan Allender. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dan Allender has this amazing phrase that he just says, all addictions are an effort to kill hope. Uh, so that sense of it, the hope that I could one day be free of porn, the hope that my marriage would actually be good. Well, we all live lives and we know that relational struggles are everywhere. Uh, we know that we keep succumbing to old temptations. And so the addiction becomes a way of kind of saying, you know, basically F it. Um, I'm never going to be able to get the life that I want. And now here's evidence to prove it. And so that's where, you know, my approach is to really go back into people's life story to be able to say, what is the fantasy? What is the type of porn? What is the affair partner that you're pursuing? And how can those behaviors and fantasies actually provide you with clues into the story that needs to heal? So, uh, one example of this would be if you were to take a, a porn fantasy, like a let's just say you're a man that is seeking out uh, a college age student or maybe a race that suggests to you something of sexual subservience. Uh, what my data found was that if you pursued college students in your fantasy type, uh, you tended to have three stories that were true of you. One was that you had a very strict father. The second was that you had high levels of a lack of purpose in your life. And the third was that you had very high levels of shame. Uh, and so if you're to kind of, I would just say, be a detective and begin to kind of say, okay, here's this man who had a father who was very strict, which means his father powered over him, was kind of gave him glares, was a very rigid man. Uh, he hates his job. 
he's struggling with a lack of purpose. Well, part of the problem with part of the solution of porn is that I can go to porn and I can actually have power over another human being. I can get this young college woman uh, and get her to do whatever I want to in my own fantasy life. Well, I can't do that anywhere else in my life. And so part of what porn offers to men uh, isn't just a place to play out their lust. It's a place to play out their, their unresolved issues with power. Uh, and so I think that's the invitation is, you know, this man who's pursuing that type of porn has been powered over by a dad struggling with a lack of purpose. Uh, and so I would say this man has a lot of pain uh, and the pain that he isn't transforming or attending to is always going to be transmitted against someone in the porn scene. And so I think that's that would be the third way of you know, I'm all for detoxes, um, but really do also do a deep dive to understand why uh, porn is appealing to you in the first place. It, how would you say, or would you say rather, that the way that men are still treated, and it does seem like maybe there's a change going on with this, but the fact that we don't or, or we aren't encouraged to share our emotion, our pain, our shame, um, does that feed back into even more of the same? Like it, men should not feel. That's kind of the message that you're usually given. Tough it out, be a man, which usually equates to don't have feelings. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And so then we end up kind of not fully having language for our sadness, for our anxiety. And then we just kind of look to old patterns where if we had porn on our phone growing up and that was the way that we work through humiliation and shame, that's where we're going to go. So, I mean, the one, one author by the name of Dan Siegel just has a really simple and eloquent phrase when he says, name it to tame it. And so what he's talking about is uh, we as human beings need to mature through being able to name our emotional life. And so if I'm agitated, if I'm angry, uh, what ends up happening is if I can name that I'm angry, if I can name that I'm really alone or feeling a lot of humiliation at work or at home, uh, what ends up happening is that the basically the upstairs brain secretes these really soothing neurotransmitters down to my emotional brain that basically give me the experience that everything is going to be okay. So if you have kids, you can kind of see this play out really well. So if my son or let's say my daughter is really agitated, distressed, if I just say, you are so upset that you know, mom didn't put your hair in a French braid this morning. Uh, she starts to soothe herself because I've actually named why she's so upset. Mm. Uh, if I say, stop it, stop whining, don't do that. I'm so tired of hearing your whining, which is, you can hear it in my voice. That's my default response. That doesn't do anything to help her. Um, but when, when our emotional life is named, that's when the soothing comes in. And I think that's where, you know, the, throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that sense of when God arrives in a really tricky, disastrous, exilic scene, God's approach is to ask questions of, you know, why are you angry? What is your name? Uh, what God is inviting is to kind of invite people to know where they are in their story and to name those things and then to be really curious about the path that got them there. Um, and so, yeah. 
I love what you said there, and it brought to mind two things that I've been thinking about. First off, um, in a marriage where a husband or a wife is struggling with pornography or unwanted sexual behavior, um, the theme that you hear so often is the, um, let's use a wife in this instance, just saying like, just stop. Like you clearly don't love me enough. You clearly don't love God enough. You're not leading our family spiritually because you keep running back to this addiction. And obviously that just heaps more shame onto the problem, which is where the addiction started or the, the unwanted behavior started to begin with. Um, so when you're, when, when you're counseling, I'm not sure if you do much, um, counseling with the, with both, uh, like both members of the marriage at the same time. Yeah. Okay, great. So what would you, in that case, what would you tell, um, the person being affected by the unwanted sexual behavior? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the first category that I would say is just like betrayal trauma is real. Um, and so that, that sense of if you are a, a spouse, uh, wife or husband, uh, and your husband or wife has had an affair, is using porn, uh, you're going to feel a lot of the betrayal trauma of that. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm working with a spouse, part of what they'll say is, I just, I, I, you know, this secret came out 10 years later, and I don't even know what to say right now. I don't know if I should stay in my marriage. I don't know what to do. And so in our brains, we have something called Broca's area, uh, which is the region of speech. And so what we've known from a lot of studies is uh, when you are exposed to a traumatic uh, event uh, or kind of stimuli that is overwhelming to you, Broca's area, the region of speech actually goes completely offline. Uh, And so again, if you're a a spouse and you've known something of your husband, your wife's kind of addiction, uh, and you haven't had language to even know how to process the disillusionment, uh, that's a form of trauma. Uh, And so I think I would say that you have to go, I would say go to therapy. And this isn't to kind of say that you are a co-addict. This isn't to say that you are just as broken as your spouse. Uh, But oftentimes that sense of, uh, I often hear from spouses, they'll say, I was completely blindsided by this, like literally had no clue. Or I would say the majority actually say, I had some clue that something was off, but really just didn't push into that. I didn't press in because I didn't want more conflict in my marriage. Uh, My husband abdicated emotional responsibility to me all the time. And so if I were to press in on this matter at all with him, he would have left even further. And I just didn't want to press in. Well, then that becomes something of the individual therapeutic work is to kind of say, how did you suppress what you knew to be true? And also, how did your marriage get to a point where asking your husband to engage truth or reality led him to be such a coward? Um, and so that's that's really the work of kind of marriages is we need to deal individually with each story that's playing out. I need the husband or the wife, whoever the compulsive behavior uh client is, I need them to be really clear of the story that they're bringing into their porn use or to their affair desire. But then I also, for the betrayed spouse, need them to be really clear about what story they're bringing into that and how they began to suppress something of what they knew. And if we can kind of get those two things established, then the couple's work goes so much easier. I love that. The other, the other thing that I was thinking throughout as I've heard you speak and as I've 
um, listened to you encourage people to dive into their stories and run into it to help them um, address the root of what's going on. And as I hear you talking about people like running back to those stories that they tell themselves and then recreating them as adults through unwanted sexual behavior. And obviously, I mean, that can go, that can go into other areas of life as well. Unwanted, any behavior. Um, but I, it like, as I'm thinking of the gospel and applying to this and how like, in scripture, you talk, there's the old man and then there's the new man. You meet Christ, you're a new man, you know, and, and he gives you the spirit and you can live in that spirit. But then so often we have this case of mistaken identity where we go back and we live in that old man. And so, um, I was going to ask you and, and under that, that like when, when people think, oh my gosh, am I always going to struggle with this behavior? Like I may go a year and be totally fine. And then something happens and I trigger and I go back to that behavior. Um, and then they think like, I just want to be free from this. What does that look like when you're like, tell us how digging into those stories and addressing those stories a little bit more will help, um, help you live in that, like that new man instead of running back to the old man. Yeah. So glad you're putting words to that, Alicia. Um, it, so I would say I'll start theologically. So just that that sense of uh, whenever we see kind of God's arrival, it's in places of exile. So we see this in the culmination, the incarnation, where uh, some theologians throughout history have said that Jesus was literally born between the, the piss and the feces of humanity. Um, so God's delight is to kind of take... Uh, on flesh to be able to kind of understand the problems that are facing humanity and become like us. So uh, not out of kind of pitying us, but actually uh, to, to become like us because God loves us that much. And so I think that's really the approach that we have to take is that God is not surprised nor ashamed of our struggles, but God's delight is to actually incarnate God's self into the mess of our broken existence. So that sense of this is our, our sexual brokenness. Uh, Alicia, I love that you put just the category of all unwanted behaviors, eating disorders, um, unwanted sexual behaviors, alcoholism, substance abuse, anger, really whatever your unwanted behavior is, that's where you're supposed to be on the lookout for the arrival of God. That's where God shows up is in those broken places. So just to be able to invite those who are listening to kind of say, where, what is the broken area in your life? And rather than kind of seeing that as a barrier to your spiritual formation, no, it, it's, it's the most fertile soil uh, for good growth to actually take place. So uh, one example of this uh, would just be, uh, so I had a, a client that was working with me and she came in uh, basically because she said that she was having relational problems, you know, would date a guy for six months and then break up with him, uh, would occasionally kind of sleep around. So we, we started kind of getting into her story. And what she essentially told me was the real reason why I'm coming to see you, Jay, is that I, I've actually been struggling with porn. I feel like I'm one of the only women out there who are this kind of perverse and struggling. Uh, and so she, we just kind of started walking through the last couple years of her porn use. Primarily, she would do it kind of at Friday nights, Saturday nights. Um, but she kind of recalled this one story where when she was in college, she, uh, 
basically was a nanny for a local family. And uh, she put this 18 month year old down for a nap and then started going through the family home looking, she went into the, the master bedroom, started looking through their uh, dresser drawers, their bedside tables. And what she didn't realize was that the family actually had a nanny cam uh, installed in this uh, upstairs in the master bedroom. And so they came home and fired her uh, for trying to steal from the family. And she said, Jay, I was so relieved that they only thought I was trying to steal jewelry because the reality was I was looking for a porn stash. I was looking for their sex toys. I was trying to understand what their sexual life was. Well, we started going back into her story to kind of be able to say, you know, my guess I told her is this probably isn't the first time that you started looking through someone's house to find sexual content. And she said, yeah, that's true. And we started walking through in middle school, she was the, you know, suburban uh, neighborhood. She was the local dog and cat sitter when people would go on vacation. And so she said, that was my favorite thing to do. I would feed the cats, the dogs. Uh, and then I would start looking through their homes. And, and she said there was one family that had just a whole chest full of Playboys. And she said, that was one of the things that I, it felt like a treasure chest to me of I'm getting to see all this erotic material. Uh, well, then we started kind of tracing back that story of where she knew how to look for people's porn stash. And what she talked about was basically growing up, uh, her, both her parents worked. So in the summertime during the week, her and her two siblings would go to live with the grandparents. Uh, and basically her grandfather would assign daily chores for the grandkids to all do. Her older siblings were assigned like a lot of the outdoor activities like mowing the grass raking the leaves all that kind of stuff but she was asked to clean basically the guest rooms and the guest bathroom and this grandfather was really particular about his glass cleaner would make his own mixture and basically said to my client uh, go into the guest bathroom you'll see all the the glass cleaner that I want to use throughout the house. Well, she goes into the guest bathroom, opens up the kitchen sink, and guess what's underneath there? Uh, his Playboy and Penthouse magazines. And so for her, this was a lot of the story of, you know, she definitely was involved in unwanted behaviors as an adult. But as we kind of went back into her story, we saw that this was actually a, a sexually abusive moment where her grandfather is giving her unlimited access, and all of her brothers, unlimited access to porn. Uh, well, her whole family struggled with porn, her and her brothers. And so that sense of it wasn't random that she was struggling with porn. This was actually introduced to her. So that sense of needing to clean glass and make things clean while also feeling dirty with porn was something that she constantly struggled with as an adult. I feel clean being a Christian, that, that Jesus has washed away all the sin in my life. Simultaneously, I feel so dirty. Well, that's the war that her grandfather first introduced her to. So her outgrowing porn uh, was just a fabulous place of her defiance of being able to name what my grandfather did to set up uh, was awful of feeling clean and dirty at the same time. I don't want to go back to that story in my porn use to feel clean and dirty. Um, and so for her, that was the journey to healing was to actually see the setup 
of her porn history. Man, that's such a powerful story. And I like that you, you could have stopped at, oh, well, it started in, you know, junior high or whatever that she would dog sit and everything. But to get to that point, that layer of, oh, you, you were abused, essentially, you were, you were exposed to this intentionally in a way that would be, you know, there's some plausible deniability in that the the grandfather can be like, Oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I had no idea. Uh, exactly. Meanwhile, all of his grandkids are being exposed to this. And I, I have a feeling that for a lot of people who are listening, you, if you are struggling with these things, you probably have a similar story where you think, Oh, well, I, you know, I started looking at porn in high school or I didn't even start till college or maybe I was eight or whatever. Um, but there's, there's usually more to it than simply um, you you did this to yourself kind of a thing, which I think is what a lot of people believe. Um, I, I know in my own story, uh, one of the first exposures I had was eight years old, and it was in finding uh, a Playboy magazine in a, in a fort that some older kids had built, and I was with a friend, and we, we found it and even made a joke that that's what it was. We didn't know until we pulled it out. And then it was this this magazine that was like, wow, what, what do you do when you're eight years old? And you feel this sense of overwhelming pleasure and shame at the same time. And we looked at it, and then I felt so much guilt, I went home and I told my mom. And I realized, even in myself, even from listening to your book, realizing that there's been a pattern of when I have struggled with those things, it's usually this, I find something where it shouldn't be, I feel clever, I feel special, powerful, whatever. And then I run the routine and then it, you know, what was my mom and confessing to her became my wife and, and not ever realizing like, oh yeah, why? And you actually helped me in your book see that myself and, and explore and go, wait, why am I doing this particular behavior? Like, why is, how is this different than, you know, any other particular behavior. So uh, I appreciate that about you. And I appreciate your, your heart in getting people to look at themselves and take an honest look. And um, even in that, it's like, wh- why was that magazine there? Who, who left that there? You know, clearly it was it. I don't think it was, you know, these older kids knew that we would find it, but they were hiding it from something. Where did they get it? It, it has this Sin in general has this way of it wants to infect and infest and go forward um, to like a virus, you know, <laughs> it, it really does want to duplicate. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit, too. Like, what is it about that grandfather, for instance? What is it about um, sin, in, especially sexual sin, tends to want to infect somebody who's uninfected somebody who you would say is innocent and pure why why is that yeah great questions i mean i think what you're hitting on is uh you know older boys having porn that that it's almost a rite of passage Mm -hmm. of being able to pass that on but also become like an older boy but then also the reality that i think you covered well uh, parents know far more than they're willing to often let them let themselves kind of state and so uh you know the the family system work we haven't even gotten into but your sexual brokenness occurs within a a family system and that kind of really needs to be explored but to your your question around uh 
um, basically why does sex and sexual brokenness really move towards those who are innocent? Uh, I think that that's, that's what porn is all about is really the degradation of another human being that the longer that you stay in it, uh, the more degradation, the more humiliation is actually playing out. Uh, and so I think that that's part of the work of evil. Um, you know, Lewis used to say before milk could be spoiled milk uh, or before spoiled milk was spoiled milk, it was milk to begin with. And so that sense of, uh, you know, sex, our, our desire for intimacy, for connection are really beautiful, good things. And part of what evil does through abuse, uh, through porn is to allow those kind of really sacred longings within us to actually be perverted and twisted. Uh, so that when we actually feel sexual, we don't feel possibility, flourishing, arousal, glory. Uh, we feel that there's something wrong with us. Uh, and so I think that's, that's a huge tragedy that we're all facing is that when most of us think about things like arousal, sexual fantasy, uh, we don't think about it in terms of possibility or intimacy uh, or glory. We think about it in terms of our own shame. So this one place that, you know, God has made us, God is the author and designer of all sexual pleasure. I kind of talk in the book that the, the clitoris has no other purpose except for sexual pleasure. Who made that? Uh, God made it. So God's mind like ours is so sexual. And so that sense of if we think about our sexual lives and we feel a level of shame, uh, well, that's the work of evil. That's not the work of the gospel. Um, the gospel is about allowing our sexuality to be seen as what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Uh, so I think that's the stance of defiance that we can really take against sexual brokenness and shame is that you know, this, the, this, really, this really isn't something that I'm supposed to be feeling as it relates to sex. Um, and so how do I kind of work with God to be able to say um, sexual shame really has already been fully addressed in the cross. There is no sexual sin that I have committed in the past or will commit in the future that is not fully atoned for. Uh, in the work of Jesus. So I think that really allows me to look at my sin, to look at my brokenness from a completely different perspective. I love that you got to that because uh, our show, the title of it is The All of Life Show. And it's about how the gospel is for all of life, for every area of life. And, uh, you know, earlier before the show we were talking, you mentioned Tim Keller and his ministries. And one of the things he said, and a few other guys I know have said, is we treat the gospel like, well, that's what gets us in the door. That gets us saved. And then you go on to bigger and better things. And I think so many of these problems that we have in the church and the reason why, you know, like you said, accountability groups and, and these types of things, they aren't bad. They just aren't enough. They aren't the solution because they miss the heart. And I think they start missing the heart because we leave the gospel. You know, it's, it's a Galatians kind of thing, like where Paul is chastising and he's saying, having started in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And we have so many well-meaning Christian ministries out there that try to perfect in the flesh what only Christ can perfect in the spirit. But we, we think that like, well, I got saved. Like you, you've mentioned, you know, I should probably uh, not struggle anymore. I, I'm a Christian now. Or um, the young woman that you mentioned, you know, she she said that she felt clean and dirty at the same time. She knew that she was saved, but she just couldn't figure out how to move past that. 
And, you know, one side tends to be, like you said, hiding in the shame. Or the other side is, no, we need to just get rid of the shame. The shame is the problem. It's like a, it's like a car with an oil light that comes on. And one says, well, um, the reason that you have these things is um, oil. But it never actually goes and gets the oil changed. And the other one says, no, the problem is this light. And so let's just put some tape over that oil light and keep on driving. And meanwhile, the car gets worse and worse and worse. And people yep. start to say, well, I think there's a problem, but I, I'm too embarrassed to ask at this point because most people change their oil every 3,000 miles and I'm at like 30, you know. So I feel like there's this um, this area that you're hitting with your, your book and your ministry and your counseling that it really tackles that heart issue where we don't like taking those long looks into our heart and we're afraid, but we we know and you're basically telling people you have a savior who's there he's holding you as you look he's he's looking with you and he's not shaming you he's not trying to uh make you feel bad and he's not going to throw you in and leave you but he's there to actually begin to clean it and to heal it and to restore it but i loved your uh your quote to the name it to tame it or own it to disown it or those types of things it's like we we want to just run from the problem we want to hide or keep it a secret and i feel there's something so refreshing about uh christians who stand up even pastors who will stand up and say hey this is what i struggle with not what i struggled with 10 years ago but currently i i struggle and i know there's a place of like if they're like hey i'm getting prostitutes every weekend there's probably you know that's inappropriate for them to stand up and and uh deal with and then go but we're gonna keep on keeping on and doing the ministry the way it is um but to say like yeah i'm not in it i'm not completely uh immune i'm still in this body there's still struggles and in my natural uh habit is to go into these things um you know i can say that myself like I know and am more aware now, and a lot of it thanks to your work, uh, when I see these types of habits beginning to come back with me, these types of temptations and things, I know that it's something within me. It's a stress thing. You know, even when what I shared earlier, finding that magazine, I didn't mention we were in the middle of moving again for like the 10th, 12th time, and I was sad to leave my friends and I was sad to to go through all of this um again and I never thought about that like often it would be the thing as the stress comes up and uh the normalcy of life begins to be threatened and changed I'm immediately that's when I know I'm more vulnerable and mm -hmm. so I appreciate your <laughs> your work in that yeah. it was just a long way to to ramble on but um, but it, I mean, just to to comment just briefly on that, I mean, that still that sense of you're in transition disruption and you find porn, which you have the integrity even at that point to say, mom, here's what I'm dealing with. So even that sense of that, that's part of the way that you are, are able to announce that all is not well in your world. Uh, and so then that sense of would your mom attune to you? Um, 
in these states of transition or did you have to struggle in order to be found? So we, we have to kind of unpack kind of just even the meaning of what what's playing out in any particular scene. Um, but then, you know, as you as you named really well, I, I think part of what the gospel, especially in Matthew five, part of what Jesus is opening up is like to be a Christian, to be a follower of me means that you're owning up to like levels of anger and lust within you that most people will never name. So when we are angry with our spouse and our heart turns against them with judgment, that's a form of murder. Uh, when we lust, uh, you know, Keller, uh, others have kind of talked about that word lust is, is much more closely aligned to the word greed. So that sense of I want something, but I can't have it. Uh, and when, you know, James 4 kind of says, when I want something and I can't have it, well, what do I do? I kill. And so part of what the gospel is actually engaging us with is to be able to say, you're so much more troubled than you originally thought. Uh, there's so much more anger than you would ever want to own up to. There's so much more lust and greed. Uh, and we have to kind of see ourselves that I, I'm an adulterer. Uh, I'm, I didn't just happen to be one 10 years ago when I looked at porn. I still struggle with adultery now. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to be able to name, uh, I am currently a killer. Uh, I'm, I'm currently unfaithful. Uh, and so then, you know, Luke 15, uh, story of the prodigal son, that, you know, the, the prodigal in the ancient Near East uh, likely would have murdered someone, likely, more than likely, would have been fully guilty of sexual assault. So we know the reality of he's a, he's likely a murderer, very easily an adulterer, uh, someone who has done a lot of sexual assault. And what does the God of the universe do? runs towards this man to, to offer him a party in his honor. And so I think that's what we have to hold together as followers of Jesus is I am so much more broken than I would ever want to let other people know about, but I'm also so much more loved than I could ever dream. And so how do we as Christians hold together uh, the more sin that I can find, the more brokenness within me, uh, well, the more repentance. And what is repentance? It, it's being able to eat and drink at a party that God is throwing for me. I love that. I love there's that juxtaposition there of he went off to throw his own party and live, you know, this licentious lifestyle. And it wasn't satisfying. And God throws him a real party. His, well, and yeah. his father representing it. But um, what would you say to somebody right now who's kind of on the fence, who's like, I, I, I'm still afraid. I don't want to come out and, and name the problems that I'm facing. But maybe just in this conversation, they're beginning to wake up to it and say, oh, well, perhaps the problems that I am facing in my marriage, facing in my career, facing with my relationships with my children and others uh, are tied into this and the secrecy and the shame. How, how would you address that person? What would be their first step? Sure. I, I mean, I would say two things. The first would be really practical. Um, and that would be a, a lot of my ministry, a lot of the resources that I've created are specifically for that individual. So I have a self-assessment that's about 160 questions that will ask about your family of origin, your fantasy types, the difficulties that you're facing in your life. And then it will give you about a 40 page report about what the why is driving that fantasy, that uh, 
unwanted sexual behavior. And so just to be able to say, be curious about your story. And so get it, even if you're not ready to tell someone else, at least kind of do the assessment, uh, read the book. Uh, I also have a, a course called the Journey Course, which is an 18 week program for, if you're in accountability or a small group or, uh, you know, group of men or women trying to address your story and kind of the broken behaviors that you're participating in. Uh, so I would just say that that standpoint of story, instead of it just being kind of making the porn, the un unwanted sexual behavior, the bad object, how do we allow kind of the current struggle to be the place where we go back and journey through our story? And so I would say the book, the self-assessment and the course are all designed to help you kind of engage those things from a radically different perspective. Um, and then the second thing would just be, how do you actually begin to open up with someone in your life? And that could be a mentor, that could be a good friend. Uh, I don't care if that is initially a, a group therapy session or some online anonymous <laughs> meeting where all you have to name is, you know, I, I'm Jay and I struggle with porn. Uh, because so much of what the heart of shame is trying to do is to convince us that we're unwanted. And if anyone actually knew who we were, what we were participating in, we wouldn't be loved. And so part of the way that we disempower shame in our lives is to actually turn and face that shame and be and begin to kind of talk about where we're harboring it. And so, so often the power of shame in our lives is really derived from our attempts to cover up our unwanted behaviors. And so the power that we actually regain in being able to turn and tell others, this is an area of struggle for me, is often one of those kind of first instances of feeling like you can actually get some progress and some traction. So get the resources, they're, they are out there and also uh, begin to push back against that voice of shame. Jay, can you tell us a little bit about where our listeners can um, connect with you and get those resources? Sure. Uh, my website is jay-stringer.com. Uh, and if you just look, I, I can't remember if it's a resources tab or what, but you'll see Unwanted, the book, you'll see self-assessment and then the, the online course as well. Awesome. I just want to encourage you guys listening into this and um, I don't, I, you can't listen to this without something being stirred, stirred in your heart. And I just want to encourage you. Um, you do have a story. Everyone has a story and obviously we can't rewrite the past, but God has given us um, the resources and the love and the power through him to be able to write the future and you can write your future. Um, so dig in to your story, um, name it so you can tame it uh, and access the these resources that Jay's talking about. Um, I, we want you to know, we've said it every single episode, but we love you guys. We, um, you are a gift. Jay, you are a gift. Thank you so much for being on here. The Lord has, has blessed you with a gift for words and a very smart brain. <laughs> and I appreciate um, the things that you've brought to this podcast today and the things that you are putting out into the world and the way that you're changing culture as it pertains to sexual behavior. Alicia, thank you for those kind words. I mean, to be with you and Stuart and I mean, really begin to name realities and truths that the church has tried to cover up for so long. It's good to be on the front lines with you all, kind of bringing something of the goodness of the gospel to every area of our life. So thank you for what you all are doing as well. 